So if we turn to Ezekiel chapter 4, we'll read from verse 1. Now, son of man, take a clay tablet, put it in front of you and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it, erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it and put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city and turn your face toward it. It will be under siege and you shall besiege it This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days you will bear the sin of the house of Israel. After you have finished this, Lie down again, and this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the house of Judah. I have assigned you forty days, a day for each year. Then turn your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, and with bared arm prophesy against her. I will tie you up with ropes so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have finished the days of your siege. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, Put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Weigh out 20 shekels of food to to eat each day and eat it at set times. Also measure a sixth of a hint of water and drink it at set times. Eat the food as you would a barley cake. Bake it in the sight of the people using human excrement for fuel. The people said... The Lord said, in this way the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I'll drive them. And then Ezekiel said, not so, sovereign Lord, I have never defiled myself from my youth until now. I have never eaten anything found dead or torn by wild animals. No unclean meat has ever entered my mouth. Very well, he said, I will let you bake your bread over cow manure instead of human excrement. He then said to me, Son of man, I will cut off the supply of food in Jerusalem. The people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair, for food and water will be scarce. They will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. Now, son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head and your beard. Then take a set of scales and divide up the hair. When the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair with fire inside the city. Take a third and strike it with the sword all around the city and scatter a third to the wind, for I will pursue them with a drawn sword. But take a few strands of hair and tuck them away in the folds of your garment. Again, take a few of these and throw them into the fire and burn them up. A fire will spread from here to the whole house of Israel. This is the word of God. Thank you, Carl.
Well, it's a strange and confronting passage, isn't it, really? Uh, and it's, it's hard to confront, isn't it, in many ways, because it's so uh, severe and so heavy. You might remember uh, a few weeks ago that we started our series uh, on Ezekiel. I almost said Leviticus. Uh, we started our series on Ezekiel uh, by, with that vision that Ezekiel had of God, of, of, of the unseen God, the God who we've never seen, but the God who speaks to us through human messengers. People like Ezekiel, uh, who speak to God's people, who have spoken to God's people, and their word has been written down. Uh, and, this, and, and this week, I guess, we're beginning to see what that message is that God sent to his people through Ezekiel. Uh, we've seen that behind Ezekiel's message is this terrifying uh, but gracious God and this week we begin to see what that message is that God had for his people uh, in the days of Ezekiel and, and then too what that means for us here today uh, in our place and in our age. Well it begins uh, this chapter with this what you might call a three act tragedy. Uh, God's message through Ezekiel is not just a spoken message but it's a dramatised one. Ezekiel is sent to act out uh, the message of God. In fact, uh, at the end of the chapter before, God has said that he's not going to be able to speak for quite some time and so Ezekiel is there every day in silence acting out this message of God. The, uh, the first part, uh, the first act, if you like, is in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 4. Ezekiel is to take this this clay tablet, and he's to draw on it uh, a picture of the city of Jerusalem. And then he's to kind of uh, put the, the clay brick there and, and then lay siege to it. It's kind of like, like building a sandcastle. You know, he's, he's to build this sandcastle and then to pretend to lay siege to it. He's going to lay out soldiers and to, to build uh, siege ramps uh, and, and, and put battering rams there. The only difference... Uh, with this is, is that this is not a game. You know, building sandcastles on a beach is a bit of a game, but here Ezekiel is acting out a message from God. There's a strange thing there in those verses as well. I don't know if you noticed that Ezekiel is to, to stand there, he's, to, he's to, to stand glaring at the city with a fry pan, or you know, like an iron pan in front of his face. It seems like a strange thing to do, doesn't it? But it's a bit like uh, it's a bit like Winston Churchill. Have you ever heard Winston Churchill? He said uh, he said about the Soviet Union, uh, an iron curtain is drawn down upon their front, and we know not what goes on behind. It's a, it's, a, it's the same thing. That that here is God. His face is set against his people, and there's this impenetrable barrier between them and him. They can cry out all they want for God's mercy, but, but he's unreachable. Ezekiel was betraying God's vengeance towards God's own city and God's own people. And the reason is clear in what Ezekiel goes on to do. He's to lie beside this model city on his left side for 390 days. Now, it's pretty clear from what happens in the rest of the chapter that he's not supposed to do that for 24 hours a day for 390 days. He has to, you know, he has to go on and, and, and gather food to make bread and make bread and eat the bread 
uh, and all that kind of stuff. But probably what we have here in this chapter is that, that every day Ezekiel was to, to, to be outside his house acting out for, for part of the day this, this message from God. You know, and people as they, as they walked by Ezekiel's house on their way to work, they'd catch a glimpse of what Ezekiel was doing. What's Ezekiel doing? He's, he's drawing on the clay tablet. What's he doing? He's laying siege to the city. What's he doing? Well, today he's lying on his left side. What's he doing tomorrow? He's still lying on his left side. What's he doing 300 days from now? He's still lying on his left side. 390 days. He's still lying there on his left side. The idea of him lying on his left side is, is that he was bearing the sins of the people of Israel. It had been about 390 years since, uh, since the temple had been built by Solomon uh, and the glory of the Lord had, uh, had come on the temple. It had been uh, 390 years and, and those 390 days that Ezekiel lay on his left side would have symbolised 390 years of the people of of Israel rebelling against God. 390 years of rebellion against God. And then Ezekiel is to move from his left side to his right side for another 40 days. This time it's to bear the sins of the people of Judah. So so for 390 days he's lying there, he's facing to the north, he's facing to the northern half of the, of the kingdom which has by this time been destroyed and then all of a sudden after 390 days the people walk past again and this time he's lying on his other side. He's not facing the northern kingdom which has been destroyed, that terrible northern kingdom that we're so much not like. Now he's facing the southern kingdom. God's judgment would be against them as well. What were the kinds of sins that God was judging? Chapter 5 verse 5 gives us a little bit of a sneak peek. This is what the Lord says, This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the centre of the nations with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and the countries around her. She's rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have been more unruly than the nations around you and you have not followed my decrees or laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. So here was God's people, called by God, set apart by God, blessed by God, and they'd been worse than the nations around them. God says they hadn't even conformed to the rules of the other nations, let alone God's, God's laws for how God wanted his people to live. No, God's people would face God's judgment. Jerusalem would be sieged and it would be destroyed. Ezekiel was speaking in, I think it was 5, 593 BC or something like that, the point is it was six years, six years before the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Verse 8 says that he'll be tied up with ropes until the end of the siege so that he couldn't turn from his right side to his left side. The judgment of God would be inescapable. There'd be no short-circuiting it. It would go on for those 40 years. 40 years was a, kind of a generation's worth. It was the time that 
the people had spent under God's judgement in the wilderness. God would wipe out an entire generation of his own people because of the sins of his own people. The second act of Ezekiel's drama is in verses 9 to 17. Ezekiel was to take wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet and spelt and put them in a jar and use them to make bread for that 390 days. You could, uh, you could almost start a health store with uh, that collection uh, of, of various grains and, and pulses, as I believe that they're called. Uh, but the message is, is not, this is the diet of tremendous you know, nutrition and health. The idea is that Ezekiel is scraping the bottom of the barrel. He, he's kind of showing what it's going to be like during the days of siege in Jerusalem. There's not going to be enough wheat to make bread. And so people will be scavenging together whatever they have and they'll even be making bread with lentils and other things that you don't make bread with. The point is there's not enough food to eat. He's to make enough bread, we're told, uh, 200 grams of bread every day. I uh, kind of interested to know how much that was so I got out my scales and I got out a loaf of bread and I weighed. That's four slices of bread. That's four slices of bread for a whole day. And 600 mils of water. That's not a lot of food. What's the point? The point is that the people during the siege under God's judgement would be starving and they'd have nothing to eat. Chapter 5 verse 10 shows how bad it would get. God says, Therefore, therefore in, the, in your midst fathers will eat their children and children will eat their fathers. I will inflict punishment on you and will scatter, scatter all your survivors to the winds. There'd be so little food that people would cannibalise their own family. And that, that happened. It happened here in the siege of Jerusalem. It happened in the siege of Jerusalem when Rome sacked Jerusalem in, in 70 AD. Not only that, they wouldn't be able to find fuel for cooking fires, uh, fuel for the fire so that they could cook, and so they would end up cooking on their own excrement. You can imagine the cities under siege, you can't go out and get firewood. Eventually it would be used up. The animals would be eaten, so you can't use manure. The only thing that you've got left to cook with is your own poo. Ezekiel can't stomach that because it would make him unclean. And so he appeals to God. He pleads with God that he might be able to just use something else. And God relents. God relents for Ezekiel, but, but there would be no relenting for the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, when the city was under siege. The third drama is in verses 5, 1 to 4. This time Ezekiel has to shave his head, uh, not, with a, not with a razor, but with a sword, I, I don't know. I've <laughs> I don't know how you even begin to do that without immense pain and difficulty. He was to shave his head. 
Uh, priests, Ezekiel was a priest. He's a, he was supposed to be a priest. He was called to be a prophet on the day he was supposed to become a priest, on his 30th, 30th birthday, basically. Priests weren't allowed to shave their heads. Shaving your head was also a sign of dishonour. Shaving your head was also a sign of grief. Ezekiel was to shave his head and his beard as well and then he was to take the hair and he was divided into these three groups and the first 30 was to take and he was to throw it in the middle of this clay city and he was to burn it up and then he was to take the next third and uh, kind of scatter it around the, the city and then kind of hack at it with his sword and then he was to take the last third and he was kind of to scatter it to the winds God explains what that's about in, uh, in verse 12 of chapter 5. A third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside you. A third will fall by the sword outside your walls and a third I will scatter to the winds and pursue with drawn sword. Almost the whole people of God totally wiped out except God commands Ezekiel to, to kind of find a few, few hairs, stray hairs that had missed the judgment, gather them up and put them in his garment. And then from those he's to take a few of those out and to throw them in the fire as well. Even the people who looked like they might escape, even some of those would ultimately fall victim to God's vengeance against God's people. Well, it's a terrifying terrifying picture, isn't it? It's a terrifying picture of God's judgment. What, What do we learn from that? What do we learn from what God did? Not just what God said he would do, but what God actually did. Six years later, six years after Ezekiel spoke, what do we learn from that? I think there's... I think there's three lessons for us from this chapter in Ezekiel. The first thing that this chapter shows us is the terrible vengeance of God. It gives us a glimpse of what it's like when God's patience runs out. If you look through the Bible, uh, you can find lots of places where God's patience runs out. Uh, You can look at Genesis 6. God created the world uh, and, you know, only a few generations later, really, you get to to Genesis 6 and God is grieved that he's made man. And it says that that man's inclination was only evil all the time. And so God sent the flood. God's patience had run out. Or you might think of the, uh, the people in the land of Canaan. That were, that were destroyed when Israel went in there uh, under Joshua. God had promised Abraham that his descendants would have that land but they wouldn't have it for 400 years. Why the 400 year wait? Because God was giving those people a chance to repent. But after 400 years God's patience had run out. There's the example of the exile here when God's patience had finally run out. There's the example of God's judgment 
God's people in Jerusalem in 70 AD at the hands of the Romans when God's patience finally ran out. It's interesting to note that there's a phrase here in, in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 9, I will do to you, says God, what I've never done before and will never do again. And Jesus says those same words, Matthew 24, 21, when he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. For then there will be a great distress unequalled from the beginning of the world unto now and never to be equalled again. Jesus goes on to talk about wars and famines and earthquakes. You see, it's easy to live, isn't it, really? It's easy to live as though God's patience will never run out. It's easy to persist in idolatry and selfishness and lovelessness and worldliness and to think that we'll never reap the consequences, to think that God will be patient with us forever. It's hard to know uh, the extent to which humans have contributed to global climate change, but you can't deny that it would be a fitting judgement, wouldn't it, on Western worldliness and indulgence and the way that we've treated God's environment. Who knows whether the rising restrictions in our society, the rising persecution uh, on the church is an example of God's judgement on the church for our worldliness. I heard this week a few, uh, not that long ago in Canada, they passed legislation that almost, almost but not quite, makes it illegal uh, or discriminatory, discriminatory to read parts of the Bible which speak against uh, things like homosexuality in public. And I discovered this week that there are moves afoot, even within our own state, to make things like that uh, a reality here as well. Who knows whether that's God's judgement against God's church for our worldliness and our selfishness. You see, if there's one message consistent through the whole Bible, it's that God's patience finally runs out. You can't can't accuse God of impatience 400 years it took for the Canaanites, 400 years for the people of Israel. How long has God borne with our indifference in our world? And of course God's patience will one day finally run out. This picture here of God's judgement on the city of Jerusalem is is just a foretaste really of the terrible judgement of God at the end of time. And those who have rejected God and rebelled against God, when they'll be cast uh, into, into hell for eternity, what will that be like? It's, it's so hard for us, isn't it, at one level to imagine what the new heaven and the new earth will be like. You know, we, we find that so intangible. But we also find it intangible to understand what will God's judgment be like? What will an eternity of God's judgment be like? But here we catch a glimpse. Siege towers, 
famine, food baked in human excrement, parents eating their children, children eating their parents, an iron curtain drawn down between people and God and where no pleas can penetrate to God, where no pleas for mercy will ever be heard. It's a terrible picture. It's a picture of God's sustained justice and sustained vengeance because of a sustained failure to trust in him and to believe in him. God's message through Ezekiel in this chapter, first of all, gives us a glimpse of what it looks like when God's patience finally runs out. The second thing uh, that this passage alerts us to and teaches us is that God's judgement, we've kind of already alluded to it, but it's that God's judgement is even for God's people. Or maybe it would be better to say, especially against God's people. With great privilege comes great responsibility. I don't know if you've ever seen Spider-Man. I think that's what his uncle, Peter, uh, his uncle says to Peter Parker. With great privilege comes great responsibility. And that was true for Spider-Man. It's also true for us. We've heard the gospel. We've heard the message about Jesus Christ proclaimed. God had sent, uh, had set these people apart, the people of Israel, the people of Judah. He'd set them apart as special people. It says there in, in chapter 5, verse 5, God says, I, I've set you apart to be the centre of the nations, to be special. God had set them apart to know him and to, and to love him and yet they'd been worse than the nations. Jesus tells the crowds in Matthew 11 that If Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the miracles that he had done, they would have repented. That because they'd seen the Son of God in person, because they'd seen his miracles in person, because they'd seen his power in person and yet rejected him, because of that, their judgement would be worse, actually, than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's amazing, isn't it? Sodom and Gomorrah is is one of the stories in the Old Testament of, of utter you know, horror and, 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 and disbelief at the extent of sin. And Capernaum, you know, like a, a city in Israel, uh, you know, just happy village, not doing anything here or there because they rejected the message about Jesus. Their judgment would be worse. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Peter writes uh, in his letter uh, that judgment begins with the household of God. He says ultimately it will be worse for those who reject Jesus but there's a sense in which in the here and now judgment begins with the household of God. We have a responsibility to believe the gospel and to take up our cross every day and to follow Jesus. You might think of the, seven, uh, the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Five of those letters are letters of warning against God's people, their churches. There's a church which has lost its first love. There's a church which was sexually immoral and was worshipping other gods. There's a church which was asleep. 
is a church which is lukewarm and indifferent. I wonder what kind of church we are. You see, it's so easy to think about that and to go, what kind of person am I? But no, the question is not, not just what kind of person am I, but what kind of church are we? Those letters were written to churches. And Ezekiel's message was to God's people. So it's all of our responsibility what kind of church we are. It's not just my responsibility. Well, well, I'll be a good Christian and you can all just go to hell and you can just all do whatever you want. It doesn't work like that. Now what kind of church are we? That's an important question to ask. I've had a few conversations lately where people have asked that question. Where are we at? Are we being sucked in by the antipathy of the world? Are we being sucked in by lovelessness? Is self-love trumping our love for each other? Where are we at as a church? Because as Ezekiel says, God says through Ezekiel to us, God's judgment begins with the household of God. We're not immune. We need to repent as much as everybody else. And our life needs to be anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ as much as everybody else needs it to be, needs their lives to be. So this, this chapter gives us a, a vision of the terrible vengeance of God. It also reminds us of our immense responsibility as people who have heard the gospel to believe it and to follow Christ. The last thing that we learn from this passage and maybe the most disturbing thing that we find in this passage is that there seems to be no future for the people of God apart from God's judgement. There's no skirting around the exile. You know, you can't kind of get around it. Even those tiny few bits of hair that were gathered up in the garments, even they had to go through the exile. They might have come out the other side, but they still had to go through it. They still had to go through the siege. They still had to go through being shipped off to another land. Verse uh, 13 of chapter 5 gets to the heart of what's going on. It's It's a terrifying verse. God says, Then my anger will cease and my wrath against them will subside and I will be avenged. And when I have spent my wrath upon them, then they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. Do what God is saying. He's saying, There's no way around. I will be avenged. My wrath will only subside when my judgment and when my justice has been poured out. Well, you read through Ezekiel, you read through these early chapters and it's hard to find that glimmer of hope. It's there, you know, it's the golden thread being woven through the book. But it's not until the New Testament that it really sort of, you know, becomes as clear as it does. 
All through the Old Testament there was that one great hope of the, the sacrifice, that blameless sacrifice that we made to, to atone for the sins of the people. But it's not until Jesus comes that we really begin to understand how God's judgement and God's mercy are really rolled together into one and the same event. <laughs> how can that be? How can we get past the judgement of God? How can we escape the judgement of God if there's no future without God's judgment. It's only if Jesus Christ is the ultimate propitiation for our sins. No one uses that word anymore and, you know, it's a bit of a, a, bit of a strange word. But it's a great word because it encapsulates something that we so easily forget. It encapsulates Ezekiel. That is that God is set against us in vengeance and wrath and mercy but that vengeance needs to be dealt with, that wrath needs to be dealt with and Jesus does that. Let me read these words to you from, from Romans chapter 3. Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The message was always there, but now it's been fully revealed. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. The nations have sinned. The people of God have sinned. The people in the city of Jerusalem have sinned. We've sinned. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation to satisfy the wrath of God by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he'd passed over former sins. Isn't that amazing? He'd passed over them. Even in the judgment of the people of God in Jerusalem, God had passed over the sins. That wasn't enough. That wasn't enough to atone for the sins of the people. But in Jesus Christ the sins that had been passed over by God were fully paid and God's love and justice met in the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, there's only two options. There's Ezekiel 4 and 5 or there's Jesus Christ. There's no future without judgment. Either we take the judgment for eternity ourselves or Jesus takes it for us and we know God and we're God's people. Our only hope is in the death of Jesus Christ to propitiate, to take away the wrath of God Amen. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, it's hard for us to grasp the suffering that your people went through.
Lord, these things are not just words on a page, but real people experienced real wrath and real pain. And Lord, we know that we're no better than they are. That our lives are marred by the same kinds of sins, the same kinds of wayward hearts. And yet, Lord, in your mercy, you have spared us from such terrible things. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that and to come to you in repentance. Lord, not so that we might just escape human suffering and terrors in this world, but so that through Jesus Christ, we might escape your eternal, terrible justice. Lord, thank you that in him there is a future for us without judgment. And Lord, we pray that we would cleave to him. Lord, we want to pray especially for all those people Lord, some of us might be here, but we pray for all those people here or elsewhere who don't know Christ. Lord, please spare them from your terrible wrath. For your great name's sake we ask it. Amen.